Welcome to the Sunday evening service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained. Christians are encouraged and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us and may your hearts be blessed as God's word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Pastor Lauren Regeer. James chapter 4, we're in the study of uh, the book of James and we've entitled the series Faith Works Simply. And it's a practical book. It teaches us how to live our faith. And someone has said, if you you don't have a faith that's living, it's probably dead. And that's what James really postulates here in the book of James, is that faith without works is completely dead. It's just a ruse. It's a fake. And so uh, if, if God's Word isn't changing you, if God isn't living inside of you and making a difference where you live, at the level of church and home and business, then chances are you're not truly born again. And that's a, that's a wake-up call to all of us. James chapter 4, really the theme tonight is finding grace. We'll begin reading uh, in verse 6. Finding grace. We've already talked about the source of conflict, and now James turns his attention to how to find the grace of God, how to be a recipient of it. But he giveth, the Lord giveth more grace. Verse 6, chapter 4. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, a very favorite verse for many of you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded, be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. This morning we mentioned how the saved, the free, the rescued and redeemed ought to laugh. Here's the other side of the coin. When sin enters the picture, there ought to be a mourning, a repentance. Speak not evil, excuse me, verse 10, uh, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil of one another, brethren, he that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge." This context, he's saying about speaking evil of a brother, and then speaking evil of the law, and then standing in the place of the lawgiver, Christ. There is only one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy, who art thou that judgest another. Let's let's pray together again. Father, thanks again for the privilege of opening this precious book. None like it. As we look into the mirror of the word, we see ourselves, and we see the really the answer to our sin and you, and we're grateful for such a life-giving book. And I pray that tonight it would be applied severally to the hearts that are here in front of me. And Lord, to my own heart, thank you for working me over. It's always the preacher's delight to first really wade through these principles and be instructed and convicted by them. And then the joy of just the stewardship of sharing them with those in our hearing. Lord, thank you for the privilege of preaching and and then living the word. I pray that all of us would be practicing the truth more than we do. We're grateful for tonight and uh, for the opportunity to remember what you've done for us on the cross of Calvary. Lord, we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we mentioned that James was very clear about something, the source of our conflicts. Where do wars come from? James chapter 4 and verse 1, James is very clear. He says it's not about uh, your problem is not your boss or your wife or your bossy wife. It's not your pastor or your parent. It's usually your pride. And James is very clear. He's pointed about that. You, chapter 4, verse 1 says, 
You lust and you war, and it starts in your own heart, in your members. And the problem typically is pride, the problem of the heart. Heart of the problem is the problem in the heart. We like to think that wars and fightings are really somebody else's problem. If only I could move to Australia, there are no problems I've heard in Australia. Or if I could have another family, another church, another place, then maybe all these things would go away. But James is very clear, no. The truth is, it's our heart that produces the selfish ambition, the desires. I mentioned uh, uh, before to our church a man who knocked on our door, church door in Indiana one time, and he was kind of a drifter. We get a lot of that where we were, and he stopped by and he said, I, I'd like some money. And I said, well, tell me about your problem. He says, well, I'm, I'm from here and I'm going there and I just need a little money that would take care, that would bring me peace in my heart. He said, if I just had a $20 bill, that would really help me. I could get some food and gas and pay my rent with $20. Well, I doubted his story, but I said, I'd be glad to do this for you, sir. I'd be glad to take you down to the rescue mission downtown Indianapolis. I know the, the man who's the director there, they've got a place for you to stay, a warm meal tonight. And he got his, his eyes got real big and he said, no, 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 I've, I've been there and those just aren't my people. He says, I can't find no peace there. When I go there, I thought, I doubt you'll find peace with a $20 bill either. There is no peace, the Lord says to what? The wicked. So wickedness is what drives our unsettled condition. And peace is not found in places or prosperity. And James reminds us that the source of our conflicts, our wars, our fighting come from within, the principle within, the selfishness within. Have you found your greatest war is with yourself? I have. My greatest enemy lives within me, and I dare say yours does too. I was uh, watching a little bit of television last night. A documentary came on television, and I picked up the phone. My, I, I guess the cell, you pick up a cell phone. I'm thinking about the old rotary dial. I picked up my phone, and I called my wife who was on her way to Indiana. I said, honey, you're never going to believe this, but uh, on Dateline tonight, there's a couple good friends of ours. They're featuring their story. Maybe some of you saw that last night. I couldn't believe it because these were good friends of mine. In fact, I know that the Morphews are well known too by the Coffee family. And the whole story was about how this war and fighting in their home has led to uh, hints and suspicion of murder. Barry's a great friend of mine. In fact, Barry in Indiana and I were hunting buddies and we spent time together. I was trying to teach him the art of taxidermy and he had asked me to come over it was a landscaper, very wealthy landscaper, had a very beautiful home, beautiful wife and family, two girls. We spent some time together. Barry was an amazing hunter, and he came over to our house once in a while and helped us with landscaping just as a friend. Well, his business took off and bloomed, and of course, he uh, made much, much money. And as I was talking to Barry, he told me that, he says, I, I love to hunt so much that that I usually spend about, oh, more than one month, a couple months, maybe three months traveling in the fall. Uh, Hunter would know what I'm talking about. He, he follows the rut from uh, Texas all the way to Canada. And, and I said, Barry, does that bother your wife to be gone that long? Well, Barry, uh, success just surrounded him and he came out of a minor league baseball program and had health problems, a knee problem, and 
He didn't pursue that career. But Barry was just a gold Midas touch, and he had a lot of money. And uh, he said, well, it was in the prenup with us. I told my wife that uh, if we're getting married, he says, you're going to miss me for four months because I hunt. It's what I love to do. That's what I love to do the most and the best. And I raised an eyebrow at that because I knew that um, that could perhaps bring some difficulty, the negligence to their marriage. Well, Barry moved on from, from uh, Indiana. He built a, a million-dollar home or more. I don't know exactly how much in the, in the state of Colorado where he's closer to nature and bigger elk and more wildlife. But the marriage, drift, the marriage partners drifted farther and farther apart. And, and, of course, as I watched the documentary, I was just amazed that my good buddy Barry was suspicion for the death of his own wife. She had taken off on what presumably was a bike trip, a little bike ride, and all they found was the bicycle and her helmet, and they never to this day have found Suzanne. And of course, Barry claims that he is innocent of all that, but last night there was some incriminating evidence that his his anger at the poor marriage, the affairs that were developing in their marriage had driven him to be very angry at the very least. It hasn't been determined for sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that Barry killed his own wife. But isn't it amazing that verse 2 of chapter 4 says, you lust, and he's speaking here to folks in the church, you have not, and you kill. At least at the point of our mind, sometimes our, our thoughts rise up in such murderous anger that we would, given a chance, push to that point, commit actual murder, and you desire to have. And so, as we began studying the first half of chapter 4 last week, we understood that there is an internal battle that evidences itself in wars with other people. We have desires that are ungodly. We have desires that are uncontrolled. And we have desires that are unfulfilled. We, we, we cannot obtain. We ask and we have not, verse 3, because we want to just consume these prayers on our own lusts. Ever found yourself praying prayers that are really self-centered prayers? <laughs> we know that prayer is asking of God. John R. Rice writes a book about that. But sometimes our prayers are not God-directed. They're selfish. And, and James, is good to call us what we are. You adulterers and adulteresses. That is, you are really unfaithful to the God who has been faithful to you. Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And as I watched that program, I thought, how could it be that my good friend, I saw him on the documentary dressed in the stripes of a prisoner where they had him incarcerated for a while. I said, how, how could it be, Barry, that you have sunk to this level where at least the suspicion is there? The evidence seems to be mounting that he has at least complicit in the death of his wife. I thought, what is it? Well, what it is, is it's our selfish hearts to become friends of the world. And that friendship leads to dangerous places. Don't you think that the scripture say, says in vain, uh, the Lord knows what he's talking about. The spirit that is in us dwell, uh, lusteth to envy. We want, we cannot be fulfilled. It's ungodly. 
and we have desires that can never be satisfied in this world. But I like the hinge, don't you, of verse 6. He giveth what? More, you can say it, grace. Aren't you glad for that? There is a God that gives more grace. Conflicts have their source in the human heart, but He gives more grace. God is the source, first of all, of grace. Now, please understand something about this. We just can't um, abuse or misuse this verse. Well, I've sinned a lot, but bless God, there's always sufficient grace. Now, there is. And there's what we call common grace that is extended to both the saved and lost, things like rain and sunshine and food and provision. God sends that on all folks all over the world. But God is speaking about the special grace that comes to those who are walking, seeking His favor. Have you found grace in your life? You can't do it by just putting band-aids on sin. He's kind of hit us pretty hard in the first half of the chapter about our sinful, in our nature that is striving and selfish. But He giveth. There's hope here. He gives more grace to those who are seeking for that. Wherefore, He saith, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the sincerely humble. Grace is not given to those who just want to cover their sins, sins for which you have no intention of repenting of. Uh, that angers God. In fact, God warns those who are really not repenting. There is a remorse and a repentance that we ought to repent of. You ever come to the Lord's table and you think, well, it's the time of the month where I've got to get my heart right. So Lord, forgive me for I'm stacking all my sins up for the last month. Forgive me, and I hope I can do better. Now that's a little bit disingenuous, isn't it, for us to do that and say that. And so I, I, I recall reading uh, a while back in Proverbs chapter 7 about the harlot, the, um, the seductress in chapter 7 of Proverbs. She's full of religion. She is. In fact, if you read her statements in chapter 7, 13, and 14, she's speaking to her lover. She says, I've caught you, my lover. And with an impudent face, she smiles. And it's a smirking smile, proud, with no intention of true repentance or even remorse. Here's what she says in Proverbs 7. I have peace offerings with me, and this day I have paid my vows, meaning I've been to the temple, cast my tithes, done my religious things, said my platitude, so I'm good with God, and I'm okay to sin now with you and have this fling. Tomorrow I can go to the priest again and make my confession she had no heart for God. That's trampling underfoot the grace of God. Are you looking for the grace? Do you need the grace of God tonight? We all do. But don't play games with God. A.W. Tozier said, If you have no desire to be holy, real desire to be holy, you have every right to doubt if you're really saved. Let me say that again. If you have no real desire to be holy, you have every right to doubt that you're really saved. So then James gives us not only the source of our wars, but he's good to show us the source of our victory, the grace of God. The source of God we've mentioned, the source of grace is God. Secondly, notice its abundance, its supply, its more. I like, I like that. We mentioned it even last week. God's grace is always greater than our sin, more than our sin. And I'm glad for that. Because some of us are good at sinning. Wow, three of you. Amen. We are. 
I, I am included, to our multiplied sins, we're grateful that there's a God that has multiplied mercy. There's never a time when we come to God in honest confession, true repentance, and say, Lord, I've done it again for the 107th time. You know that sin which so easily besets me? Lord, that one. I've done that one again. I never want to do it again. We never hear from God, well, that, that grace for you, son, ran out at 106. I'm done with that. No, thank God that God giveth, the Bible says, more grace. Aren't you glad for more, abundant? It's called exceeding, abundant. It's called sufficient and even more than sufficient. For every sin you've committed, past, present, and future, God died. Grace covers that. We're accepted in the beloved. We're placed in his family by grace. We are enabled to live his life, the Christian life, by grace. We are freed this morning. We were freed by his grace. We didn't deserve that. And so we're grateful for the muchness, if I could use that word, of grace. Verse 6, wherefore he saith, and here are some qualifiers. We know the source is God. The supply is abundant, but here we see uh, that we have the submission of grace. Its qualifications begin with humility. We've talked about common grace, but God is speaking about grace that you and I need to live our lives as Christians. He says, first of all, uh, God, verse 6, resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. James brings a sobering reality. Unlike that harlot in chapter 7 of Proverbs, or the rich young ruler who came more or less flippantly into the presence of Christ and said, I've done all the commandments, I'm a pretty good person, what can I do? What can I do to merit and inherit the kingdom? I want to do this. I want to add to the list of religious duties one more thing so I can be sure of heaven. The Lord said, well, then give everything you have away. And that was the idol of his heart. And God is saying, we're not talking about that sort of spirit, a callousness about sin, or a selfish attitude that precedes uh, really a disfavor of God, but we're talking about humility. He says this, submit yourselves therefore to God. This is the spirit that says, bend me. The Welsh revival began with a young 20-something-year-old man, who, Evan Roberts, who simply said this, Lord, just, just, and the whole revival started with his prayer, Lord, would you bend me? Bend my stubborn will. What kind of prayers do you pray? Submit yourselves. Therefore to God. And then you can resist the devil and he will flee from you. Christ is saying to us in verse 6, here's a great reminder before we partake of the elements, grace is a gift to the humble, first of all, an attitude of brokenness before God, and then to the resistant. Resistance is a qualifying element for receiving God's endowment of grace. Don't think that grace, uh, by the way, don't think that grace is supplied to those who are not resisting the devil, fleeing, fighting the devil. I want to say something. If you've invited the devil, and I'm talking to young people all the way up to us older folks, if you've invited the devil into your movies, your television, your feeds, your posts, your blogs, whatever it's called, your books, your phones, 
How can you say, now God bless me, God give me favor, God I need your grace today. And this is what the, the great author James is saying to us in the book of James. You cannot be duplicitous. You cannot say, God I need your grace. And we all must pray that prayer without fighting and resisting the devil. James 1.8 says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his... Will you ever find yourself wanting the world and still asking God to give you a victory over it? It's almost duplicitous, isn't it, to say, Lord, I want, the, I want what the world offers. I'm tempted by that. It's okay to be tempted by it, but to have this love for that what we, which we should hate. And the Lord is saying, you've got to resist it. You've got to flee from that. Now then, God, pour your blessing upon me, but I don't want to give this up. And God is saying, you're not submitting then, are you? Cleanse your hands. Submit, verse 7, yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. That's the promise. He will flee from you. If God has given you, and he has, if God has given you, now listen to this, if God has given you the, the sword of the Spirit, and you're not using it to fight the devil, that's an offensive weapon. And it's just kind of gathering dust in your spiritual closet. Don't expect God to bless you with all the grace that you need. The question isn't, is the devil fighting you? For he is. It is, are you fighting him, resisting him? So there's resistance as a preamble to grace. There's humility, submission. And now we add verses 8 and 9. Draw near to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. There is a bridge that reaches, spans from the heart of man to the heart of God. The question is, and that's the bridge of prayer, and the question is, how often, uh, friend, are you, how often are you using that bridge of prayer? You know, in the Old Testament, God uh, certainly was no different. He was all everywhere present. That's one of His qualities. But he confined himself to one nation, at least to, as a display of his grace. And he confined himself to a little uh, place called the Holy of Holies, right? And there was a one priest, a high priest that could go in. But today, this great God is available to us. And did you know that you can live in the spirit of prayer? And that you can draw nigh to God, even as I'm preaching, you can be praying? How often have you used the bridge of prayer? How often have you crossed that in your spirit and heart? When you pray, is it something you relegate to maybe that quick little hmm, prayer that you pray? Lord, thank you for this meal. Or Lord, now I lay me down to sleep. I know we're more mature than that. But I wonder if you are drawing near to God. Or are you just refusing or neglecting the greatest privilege of your life? And that is to walk as near to God as possible. Enoch was not for what? God to, his practice of just walking with God. Everything and everywhere he went, there was this continual flow of prayer to the Lord. Oh, that we would all have hearts like that, that would go through the day crying out, God, I don't, I don't want to see that. God, I want to turn from that. Lord, I need to tell me what to do now. What is the best use of my time? Give me eyes to see the lost. Give me the words, the boldness to say what I need to say. In this moment, Lord, I've got a meeting here in a few moments, and, and, and my boss isn't saved. And Lord, I, I, I don't want to besmirch your name. I don't want to defame your character. I want to lift higher. And, 
Lord, here I'm getting ready to drive to Atlanta. So I need your help to get through that city. I wonder if you just have this ongoing, ongoing conversation with God. Draw near. Don't get to heaven one day. And have God say, welcome home, stranger. All I heard from you is thank God for this food three times a day. But I hope you have this deepening kinship with him. Everything, take it to the Lord. A hunger for God. We spoke this morning of a laughter that ought to accompany those who have been freed by God's grace. But here, James is very sobering to us. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It bothers God when you're not holy. Cleanse your hands. This is, a, this is something he's putting on us, this, this self-examination, which we encourage every time we have the Lord's table. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. That's a phrase often repeated in the book of James. The sweet water can't come from the same spring as that is the salty. And and chapter 1, verse 8 or 7, 8 it is, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. But then he warns us about a tearless, careless Christianity that's really calloused beyond feeling. And we see that in verse 9. Be afflicted and mourn, weep. You are too careless too lighthearted in your worship and in your life. Of course, coming out of chapter 4 in the first few verses, you were, and even all the other abuses mentioned in James about uh, paying more attention to certain classes of people, making fun with our, or misuse of our tongue in chapter 3, he says, I want you to be serious about your sin. And I want it to drive you to a place where it affects you, where you're weeping over it. I think the church in America, as I observed it in the 70s, and that's about all I can remember back in the 1970s, there is a, a lightheartedness, there is a showtime religion, there is a sense in which we are now ministering to the masses instead of falling on our faces before God and dealing with sin as we ought to do, be afflicted. This is something that even Joshua said before they crossed the Jordan River. I want you to afflict yourselves. What did he mean by that? Take it seriously. We are to preach as dying men to dying men and women. And all, if all you can think about is the next fun thing, church. We were discussing this with other preachers and thinking back down the road a piece about how church culture has changed. Did you know that, um, as one preacher put it, if you took away the music and took away the lights you know, sometimes, and the smoke, he said, <laughs> and take away the teams and the band, and all you had left was this book here, and a faithful preacher who opened this every week, would you even come to church? The expectation now in the church 
right? Is that we have to be coddled and entertained somehow. We have to be uh, caused to laugh. Christian comedians are not ever known (laughs) in this book. But yet we flock to these kinds of events thinking that's what should satisfy the heart. And he is saying to us, you ought to be afflicted and mourn. One day we will stand. Can you imagine standing before the Lord and giving account of our lives? What have you done? You are to weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. He's saying, sober up. Your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves. In the so- you want to be revived? God's grace to come upon your life? Humble yourselves and He will lift you up. And then He picks on those who have used their gift of criticism, I call it, judgment. Speak not evil. You want to know the grace of God. Speak not evil, brethren. You speak evil of your brother. You're standing in the place of a judge. Now, certainly we are to be discerning. There's a time, biblically, to confront others and to do so in a biblical, godly manner when sin is at, at stake. But he says, you're just sniping. And the idea of verse 11 and is that there is this sense of slander. You don't think it a big deal to just cut people down, whether it be on the internet, their Facebook, or you're just using your tongue sharply, understanding that you're placing yourself now as the spirit of a judge. And verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Be not many masters, teachers, judges, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Let God be the one who judges the heart. You're not a doer of the law, but a judge. You've placed yourself. So if you want to know the grace of God, you are to first of all know that source, God is the source. And then you're to submit and humble yourselves in a spirit of gratitude for who God is and the gifts of God. And then you are to have a hunger, verse 8, for God, and He will draw nigh to you. be interesting if we passed out a piece of paper just just between 1 and 10, how close are you to God? How close, are you to, how close do you sense that you are to God? I know that's pretty subjective, isn't it? What would you put on that paper? Are you hot or cold, lukewarm? He will draw nigh to you, and then you are to introspect. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Uh, be sober about it. Have a hunger for God. And then watch what you say about others, and you will be a recipient of the great grace of God. As I close in prayer, I'd like to ask our men who are going to help serve communion to make their way up front, and then we'll share time together around the table. Lord, how blessed it is to know that you give much more grace, always sufficient supply. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you.